Thank you, Kim. Good morning, everybody. Before we get started with uh, part two, I know all of you have been just chomping at the bit to hear part two of the message that we began a couple weeks ago. But before we do that, uh, I want to show you a brief video. It has absolutely nothing to do with this morning's sermon, but I thought it would be kind of fun to watch anyway. I want to introduce at least one of our new basic leaders. And we'll have a toast. He's dead. I killed him. I, I didn't mean to. It was either him or me. There you go. Now, I know it makes no... A lot of people are looking like, what does that have to do with anything? You're going to have to ask the basic kids. They all, they all got the, the whole story. Or as uh, Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. They got that on Friday night. So ask the basic kids. They had a fun time at their kickoff on Friday night. So with that little bit of humor behind us, let's move on. A few weeks ago in Measure Your Pleasure, Sermon from the Mount, Part 1, we recognized that pleasure is a God-created thing. It's truly a gift from Him. We noted that pleasures can encompass a wide variety of things. And the thing we focused on a few weeks ago was the pleasure that we find in God's beautiful creation. But there are many other things that he's created that we can enjoy too. We also saw the reality that we have this sinful tendency to make ultimate things from the good things that God has given us to enjoy. In other words, we can worship the creation rather than the creator. And that's idolatry. We highlighted the great truth that in the good things that God has given us to enjoy, we can find that all of them are only a glimpse of his greatness, only a hint of the glory that God has and God is. They're meant not for us to worship, but to lead us to him, to point us to his greatness, to his majesty, to his glory. And that's why we can say, as did C.S. Lewis, that the problem is not that we have too much pleasure, but that we are far too easily pleased with that which is second best. You may remember that the message two weeks ago was mountain-focused. Well, today's message begins there too, but it begins in Scripture on a mountain, and it serves as a second part expanding on some of the same ideas that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning... You may want to open with me to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to begin with verse 18. It's kind of a long passage, so hang with me as we read this together. Luke 9, 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, what, or who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after saying these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So here we see the disciples, three of them with Jesus, having a literal mountaintop experience. That is, they were on top of a real mountain. And we also could say that they're having what we might call today a figurative mountaintop experience. In other words, a very charged emotional or deeply spiritual experience, witnessing the glory of Jesus. And there's a good reason we began reading this passage with the verses just before this experience that Peter, James, and John had. Because let's note what was said in verse 23. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So Jesus is telling his disciples what their normal everyday lives were going to be like if they would follow him wholeheartedly. Self-denial, taking up the cross, losing your life. Now how can we say that this will be the norm? Well, Jesus said daily, didn't he? He said daily. Then at the end of this discourse, he tells them that some of them who are there with him will see the kingdom of God. And here's where we see the mountaintop experience. Though they were literally on a mountain, the spiritual experience that they had was certainly even more significant. Many of us can relate to some degree to what the apostles experienced that day. Many of us have had deeply emotional or deeply spiritual mountaintop experiences. These things are part of the ebb and flow of our lives. We looked at this idea a few weeks ago. There's something awe-inspiring about being on the mountains, being in God's amazing and beautiful creation. And again, as we noted a couple weeks ago, I believe these kinds of experiences are meant to point us to someone greater, namely our Creator God. They're not meant to be an end in and of themselves. They're meant to display just a glimpse of His glory and direct our gaze to the one who created them. But at the end of any kind of vacation, 
whether it's a mountain vacation or a beach vacation or like James was telling me, they just got back from an ocean vacation. Whatever the case may be, what happens? You go home. You go home. There's no more water around you, right, James? Less than maybe you're in your bathtub. You come off the mountain, literally or figuratively or both, and back into the valley where you live every day. There's always the reality that we do not live on the mountaintop. We always have to come back down to earth. That's pretty visually striking when you're leaving the mountains of Colorado and then you head through the plains of eastern Colorado or western Oklahoma or the plains of Kansas on the way back to Oklahoma. You know, in about less than an hour, you go from these incredible mountain vistas to very flat terrain. Let's be honest, it can be somewhat of an emotional letdown. But it reminded me of this story in Scripture, and it reminded me that because we don't live on the mountain, figuratively speaking at least, we must learn to live in the ordinary, day-to-day, everyday existence of the valley. Now, we've all had some kinds of what you might want to call mountaintop experiences. They're kind of secular or spiritual, okay? Think of things like this, like the birth of a child. For most of us, that was a mountaintop. It was a deeply emotional, wonderful experience. Your wedding day, winning a championship. Anybody ever been part of a championship and you worked really hard for it and you won a championship? That's a mountaintop experience. Or you get some kind of award, something important. That's kind of a mountaintop experience. Graduating, that can be a mountaintop experience. A great vacation, like we've been talking about. Or a great missions trip. How about just being born again? Some of us, that's a deeply spiritual experience in a mountaintop. For some of us, it isn't necessarily, even though it's very real and very powerful. Some of us have experienced God's manifest presence in some real, almost tangible way that you can touch. So we have this up and down existence. We have this kind of roller coaster life, and we see it worked out in even more regular ways in our lives. How about weekends versus weekdays? Huh? We have these weekdays. We look forward to the weekends, our times off of work. Even if we love our work, right? We all look forward to vacations. We all look forward to weekends. Why do we call these kinds of things mountaintop experiences? Well, in some ways, you absolutely feel like you're on top of the world. And when you're on a literal mountain, you might just be. It's exhilarating. It's exciting. It's out of the ordinary. And what's more, it can teach us. It can give perspective. It can give clarity. It can renew and refresh. So in these ways, mountaintop experiences are a genuine blessing from God, something that we can truly be thankful for. When you think about literal mountaintop experiences, it helps explain why we think of some things as figurative mountaintop experiences. For example, on a clear mountain day, you can see clearly from the top of a mountain more clearly than pretty much anywhere else. You feel like you can see for miles and miles. That's because sometimes you can. So when you have a, a figurative or a spiritual mountaintop experiences, sometimes those give us a sense of clarity too, don't they? You feel like you can see what's going on better than you could see before you had that experience. And Scripture also speaks of mountaintop experiences, not just the one we just read about, both literally as in the passage we just read and figuratively. 
For example, how about this? How about when Moses caught a glimpse of God's presence on a mountain? He carried the literal glow of that experience with him for a while. But even with Moses, who stood in the physical presence of God, that faded eventually too, didn't it? My latest vacation, which ended three weeks ago, was a mountaintop experience. It was kind of an emotional high. The refreshing and the renewing of that vacation lasted, oh, a little over a week, about as long as the vacation itself. Then the reality of life caught up with me, and I had a decision to make when the reality of life caught up with me. Was I going to allow it to be a letdown, or was I going to continue to live in God's presence? but in his everyday, ordinary presence. All Israel had mountaintop experiences. They saw the miracles of God delivering them time and time again. But the spiritual boost they got from seeing those miracles didn't last either, did it? They were grumbling about things like their food within just days of having seen these amazing miracles. The Apostle John He had a mountaintop experience. It resulted in the book of Revelation at the end of our Bibles. Jesus' disciples saw the risen Lord after the resurrection. These kinds of experiences are meant to be a wonderful blessing from God. I believe they are also meant to be encouraging and uplifting, and sometimes they're truly meant to be life-altering. Certainly, seeing the risen Lord made a lasting difference in the lives of the apostles. It enabled them, it equipped them to endure a lot of things in their own personal valleys, including martyrdom for most of them. I believe these experiences are often God's purpose in changing us. They're part of what he uses to shape us, to mold us, to teach us, or maybe just to refresh and renew us so we can keep on keeping on in the dailiness of life. The fact is, though these wonderful experiences can and sometimes are an important part of our life in God, it's what Matthew Henry, the great Puritan preacher, once wrote. It's his ordinary presence, his ordinary presence in our lives that this passage that we just read, taken in its entire context, really emphasizes. That's not to say that there was anything ordinary at all about what the disciples experienced that day. Here we see Jesus, God made flesh, showing three human beings a glimpse of his once and future glory. In some ways, he was showing us what eternity will look like. Think about that. Revelation tells us about the eternal city. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on, For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Of course, we know that the Lord Jesus is the Lamb, isn't he? Matthew Henry noted about the transfiguration that when it was all said and done, Jesus alone remained with them, and not transfigured, but as he used to be, ordinary, human. Christ does not leave the soul when extraordinary joys and comforts leave it, Christ's disciples have and shall have his ordinary presence with them always, even to the end of the world. Let us thank God for our daily bread and not expect a continual feast this side of heaven. We often see passages like this that we just read about the transfiguration 
out of their entire context. And this is a reminder to us that to do this is to miss something really important. And that's why we began reading this passage before the account of the transfiguration, because what Jesus said there is important to our full understanding of what actually took place there, as Luke says, eight days later. So we back up and we look at Luke 9.20. We see Peter proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. What an amazing pronouncement that was. The disciples had just told Jesus that everybody else thinks he's either John the Baptist or a prophet, but they had come to believe he was the Messiah, the Anointed One. What's more interesting is how Jesus responded to this great statement. It should be a great statement of faith. He should be saying something like, way to go, huh? Way you guys are pretty sharp. It's good to see you've been paying attention. He didn't say that. Or, hey, you guys have it figured out, so now you're my inside circle, and we're going to turn the world upside down for me. He didn't say that either. Instead, what happened? Jesus warned them. He warned them. First, he warned them not to tell anyone what they'd come to believe, at least at that point. And then he stated in a very downer moment, talking about suffering. Worse yet, it wasn't just his own suffering that he was talking about, but theirs too. Seems like an awful way to kill the moment, doesn't it? They go from what could have been this very high moment of declaring him to be the Messiah to being told they must deny themselves, that they must stop making themselves the object of their own actions. It would be like if I was sitting on a mountaintop with Barb, we're on a mountain peak, and I think, hey, Barb, just think, next week at this time, we're going to be down in the flatlands again. Talk about killing the moment, huh? Then Jesus injects some hope at the end of this discourse. He says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. The context shows that Jesus was speaking of what transpired just a little over a week later. That's because of that key transitional verse that we see in verse 28. He says about eight days after Jesus said this. This phrase connects the account of the transfiguration which follows to all of what Jesus had said in the previous verses and especially to what he said about seeing the kingdom of God. So let's be sure to take note of the things that immediately preceded the transfiguration of Jesus. First of all, Jesus acknowledged the disciples' confession of him being the Messiah, but he told them to be quiet about it. He spoke clearly about the suffering that he knew was coming, and he invited them to share in this. And then he promised the coming of the kingdom of God in his own ministry. And then that brings us to the actual event itself. They were up on a mountain to pray. Now, the other two gospel passages that relate this story, Matthew and Mark, point out that his appearance was transformed or transfigured. That's why we call it the transfiguration. The word there is the same Greek word from which we get the word metamorphosis, which means to change into another form. Now, Peter, James, and John were seeing the brightness of Jesus' glory. Mark says his clothes were dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes were as white as light. And imagine this, Peter, James, and John almost slept through the transfiguration. It says they were heavy with sleep. Of course, they did wake up 
And because they woke up, that's why we have this eyewitness account. They saw this happen. And though I find it interesting that the only gospel writer who was actually there, John, didn't include this story in his gospel. However, John did write in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory. Perhaps a reference to what he himself saw at this event. Only Peter referenced it directly in 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll look at that here in a moment. But back in Luke, verse 32, after it notes that they were sleepy, it says that when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. This is important too. They saw it. They saw it. The word of God is not just a bunch of made-up stories. This story is an eyewitness account. Peter referred to it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 16, where he wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. So now the disciples, they're wide awake. And we have Peter, and what does he do? He says, let's build something. Let's build three shelters. And here the word shelters means dwelling. It's a place to stay. It's a place to live. Now let's all be honest. When you have a great vacation in the mountains or the beach, don't you sometimes think, how cool would it be to live here? Huh? How great would it be to look out my living room window and see this every day? Jim and Laura, I know you think that when you go to the cabin in Minnesota. Every day. Wouldn't it be cool to see this? I think that pretty much every time I go. Barb and I often wonder if you ever get used to such scenery so that it becomes just second nature and it doesn't take your breath away every time you step outside. But God had something else to say to them. So he interrupted Peter, speaking from a cloud. There's another experience, huh? Not only did they see Jesus illuminated, lighting up the scene all by himself, but then there was this cloud. And God interrupted him. He's had a point to this, beyond the mere manifestation of his glory in Jesus. And he tells them in verse 35, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Listen to him. If there are any key words in this passage this morning, I think we've just heard them. Listen to him. Yes, the glory was awesome. Yes, this is a real, honest-to-goodness, mountaintop experience. But where do we go from here? In just a few minutes, you're coming back down off this mountaintop. But listen to him. Now here's where we can really relate to the disciples. Just like we all tend to do with these mountaintop experiences, Peter wanted to pitch a tent. He wanted to stay there. Or he wanted to capture the moment on Instagram or Facebook to preserve it, to make it last more than just a moment or a day or a week. And hey, we all understand that don't we? Good things are enjoyable. We don't want them to end. That's why I took 500 digital pictures on my vacation just a few weeks ago. And I made a video with the pics and video that I shot. If anybody wants to see that, you can see me after the service. To help us remember the experience, right? To help us relive it. It is good for us to be here, said Peter, 
And it was, but not for the great experience of it all. Yes, that was a blessing, but it was gravy. It was only a part of God's purpose on that mountaintop. It wasn't the meat, if you will. It was the gravy or maybe the dessert, the extra that enhances a great experience that we've had. But it wasn't the substance of what God wanted to say that day, what God wanted to accomplish in the lives of those three disciples and then as they spread the news about what had happened later on. What God wanted the disciples to remember about this experience is what he told them. He told them to listen to Jesus. Our human tendency is to hang on to the afterglow of the experience itself and miss the fullness of his ordinary presence where we can really listen to him. We see it a lot in churches today. It's as if the Holy Spirit has landed in some particular place and nowhere else. I actually saw an ad in a magazine once that, where the church said that. The Holy Spirit has landed. It's landed here, and you need to come here because that's where you're going to find the Holy Spirit. It's almost as implying that you can box and move the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God. Taken to its logical conclusion, this line of thinking also says that the experience of God in certain places is such that if you're not there, then you've missed God altogether. If we understand it this way, we can never, will never be satisfied with anything less than, any, anything less than that particular kind of experience with God. And I think that can be a real problem because the reality of our Christian existence is that while we have most of the time, his, not his extraordinary presence, but his ordinary presence. We don't have that all the time. It's just, it's just reality, folks. Most of life is not a mountaintop experience. Anybody notice that? But all of life can be, all of life can be lived in his ordinary presence. Now, does that discount joy? No. Does that discount these experiences? No. Or as Paul might say in Scripture, may it never be. But who says his ordinary, everyday presence is any less special than his extraordinary presence? Jesus never said, I'm with you at the highest highs of the mountaintops, but in the valley you're on your own. We cannot deny the words of Jesus who said, I am with you always. And he said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And he says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. So do we believe those things or don't we? While mountaintop experiences are great, we don't live there on the mountain, folks. We live in the valley and God's with us there too. Here, now. And he's speaking to us through his word. Here, now. And what does God say? Listen to him. Listen to him. How we view our experience of God, how we view our experience of God will make a difference in how we live our lives. The experiences are a means to an end, not an end in of themselves. God wants to accomplish things in our lives, and these experiences are a means to that end. We lose something when the experience is an end in itself. 
If that's the case, then we're a lot like the Pharisees. Jesus chided them for always looking for a sign, didn't he? God can reveal himself in these mountaintop experiences. They can be very real. But we can all learn what the disciples learned on the mountain that day. Listen to him. We have his word. We have his word, folks, through which he is able to speak to us every time we open it. It's the firm foundation for his speaking to us. If we're so wrapped up in the emotional charge, the spiritual high that we get from these experiences, and again, there's nothing wrong with that, but if we're wrapped up in that, we may never really learn to listen to anyone, let alone Jesus, the living word. That's why God interrupted Peter on the mountain when Peter said, let's camp here, let's stay here, let's make this experience last. The only experience that needed to last was listening to him. So here we see Jesus' disciples. They've gone from the challenge to join Jesus in his sufferings to the unimaginable heights of this mountaintop experience and now back down again. What a roller coaster ride, huh? Could it be a letdown? Could it be a letdown? It could be, unless we understand it properly. And that's why it's important to note how this account of the transfiguration ends in verse 36. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. Charles Spurgeon preached a great sermon once on the transfiguration. Let's listen to some of the things he said. The best thing, there we go, the best thing, after all, for Peter was the less exciting society of only Jesus. Depend on it, brethren, that ravishing and exciting experiences and transporting enjoyments, though they may be useful as occasional refreshments, would not be so good for every day as that quiet but delightful ordinary fellowship with Jesus alone, which ought to be the distinguishing mark of all Christian life. As the disciples ascended the mountainside with Jesus alone, And as they went back again to the multitude with only Jesus, they were in as good company as when they were on the mountain summit. And although Jesus Christ, in his common ordinary attire, might not so dazzle their eyes as when they saw his raiment bright as the light, and his face was shining as the sun, yet he really was quite as glorious, and his company quite as beneficial. When they saw him in his everyday attire, His presence was quite as useful to them as when he robed himself in splendor. Today, today we can see Jesus in his ordinary, everyday attire. We can see Jesus in his street clothes today, not the bright, glorious raiment that he wore on the Mount of Transfiguration. Not always that, but his still, small voice. The very word of God that we can take up and read whether we're on the mountaintop or we're in our home, His Holy Spirit residing in all who trust in His sacrifice for them. And as we noted last time in part one of this message, the disciples had a taste that day on that mountain of what to expect in eternity. Sometimes mountaintop experiences are worth it because they help us remember that someday we will live in an eternal mountaintop experience with the eternal glory of Jesus lighting our very daily existence. And we won't ever 
have to come back down into the valley like when we come home on vacations. But in the meantime, today, we do live in the valley. And the mountaintops are wonderful, but they're fleeting experiences. The reality of our lives on this earth is that what goes up must come down. Call it spiritual gravity, if you will, since our lives are not lived in the air but on the ground. And if we're going to live on the ground, in the valley, let's be rooted in him, not in these amazing experiences alone. In other words, let's learn to live in, and yes, let's learn to even delight in his ordinary presence. Through the means of grace, he has given all of his children apart from the mountaintop. We measure our pleasure. Remember, we talked about that last time. Delight in him in whatever state we find ourselves. One writer at Desiring God website said that pleasure is the measure of your treasure because the emotion of pleasure is a gauge that tells you what you love. Do we love the King of Kings because of who he is? Do we love the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus, because of what he's accomplished for us in redemption, because of the word that he's left us? Or do we love just the pleasurable experiences that he provides? Are we content with? Are we satisfied with Jesus alone in his ordinary presence? Let's think about that together as we pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wondrous experiences that all of us in this room have lived in one way or another. We've lived mountaintop experiences that included things like vacations and the birth of a child and a wedding day and a graduation. Father, we've lived mountaintop experiences that included a tangible sense of your presence with us that brought us to tears or brought us to our knees, Father God, or caused us to fall down in worship to you. But Father God, we realize that we don't live on this mountaintop. So Father, we pray that you would build in each of our hearts a sense of contentment and satisfaction because you promised that you would never leave us. You promised that you would never forsake us. You promised that you would be with us always, even to the end of the age, Lord. And so, Father, we know that where two or three are gathered together in your name, you are in their midst. And so, Father, you are here with us even now. And we're grateful for that, Father. Whether it's a truly mountaintop experience, which we can have, and we appreciate and we enjoy and we uh, give you glory for that, or whether it's that still small voice that we hear as we read your word, as the Holy Spirit brings witness to our hearts inside of us, Father, that you are with us and that you walk with us and that you're with us day by day in the dailiness of life, Father, whatever we face. We thank you for that reality. Help us to live in that, Lord. Help us to recognize that. Help us to be thankful for the experiences but help us to be thankful for your ordinary presence at work in all of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.